Back to the Forgecast. My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. Today's Forgecast is brought to you by the handsome Robert Weber Abrasives. So make sure that the next time you need abrasives or grinder belts for your workshop, you give a visit to webers.net.au to stock up. What have you been up to this week, Sam? Ah, well. Um. <laughs> I, I have done a little bit more engraving on the Sleeping Dragon Hammer. Um, mm-hmm. I've I've done one wing now, and I'm moving on to the second one. So that's making progress. You got to um, make it to- sound more grandiose. I've finished the east wing, <laughs> and now moving on to the renovations in the west wing. <laughs> I suppose it depends on which way you look at the head as mm-hmm. to whether or not it's east or west. Or north well, or are you south? coming in the front door or the back door? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, I can tell how this is going to go. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's taken up a bit of my time, but I've also started work on my birthday blade because it was my mm. birthday this week. It was. Um, yeah, on Monday. So I um, sketched up a rough design it's for a 1796 infantry flank officer's saber. And this um, is your first sword, birthday sword, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I've made knives previously, but I decided that if I was going to make a blade this year, um, I wanted to make something that I was going to actually use. And, you know, I've already made pocket knives in the past, and so I figured making myself a sword... Other like an actual decent product that I can show to other people and to show what I'm capable of. Um, I should move do that. to Texas. You can wear it on your hip. Technically, I can wear it on my hip here because it's blunt. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's, it's a sparring sword, uh, and I am a member of a martial arts group, so I'm, you know, technically speaking, allowed to carry it anywhere. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've got the blade heat treated uh, and the guard rough forged i've got to forge it out a little bit more and do some like shaping with the grinder and stuff like that before i can uh punch the slot for the for the blade tang and then all that kind of stuff and i've got a lot of grinding on the blade to do originally my birthday blades were made in five consecutive days um but this week has been a bit mad um i only got like an hour and a half in the shop on monday so that was enough time to prep the damascus billet for the guard stock and to um, like later to plasma cut the the blade um, steel out. It was just a bar. I didn't plasma cut the shape. Um, so then all of Tuesday I spent forging. But then yesterday Wednesday I um, was spent the whole day working for my father. Um, and then today I basically had to take a mental health day because. Um, Still struggling some days, and some days you just have to take that time. Oh, self care is um, important. Yeah, well, you know, it was either that or you know, try my best to do what I could in the shop and potentially end up injured because I'm not focused or something like that. It's better to lose the day and gain another another time than take yourself out of the fight for a couple of weeks. 
uh, by making a dumb mistake. So, um, yeah, that's that's basically been my week. Um, just just prepping the blade and all that kind of stuff, and uh, I'll be back at it tomorrow, doing some grinding. Hopefully, uh, I was very fortunate in the a local friend of mine, Dan, uh, donated some belts to me. Um, I'm going to get him back at some point. But, um, yeah, ran low on belts, needed them for the sword build. So mm. uh, it's nice to have a, a good community around me here in uh, WA that we've managed to build, which is really good. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> my song of the week this week is actually uh, one that's kind of come back to me after a while um, because I've been doing my uh, singing streams on Instagram. My Sam too sings. Much, too much revelry and applause. <laughs> yeah. It all started because I got bored at night and I couldn't go to sleep, so I decided I'd, you know, fire up an Instagram where they won't shut my life down for playing copyrighted music. Because hmm. um, <laughs> YouTube would shut my channel down immediately if I tried to do that. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's actually been a lot of fun. And uh, one of the songs that kind of I remembered that I knew uh, was Rock and Roll by Eric Hutchinson, um, right. which we already have some Eric Hutchinson on the on the uh, playlist with DME, but Rock and Roll was his first hit song. Like, it was the one that put him on the map many years ago. So um, it's one right. of my favorites. So it's definitely well worth a listen to. And it's got a really nice... It's almost scar in the way it, it sounds. Like, it's, it's boppy, it's bluesy. It's really interesting. Ironic given the title. Yes. Yes. It's very much <laughs> not rock. It's very much not rock and roll, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> but anyway, with that being said, what have you been up to this week, Alex? Uh, most of the last week was taken up um, finishing off my latest run of my Raptor folders, um, which all sold out really quick, which was nice. Um, I've been getting more mill practice in as well, um, sort of refining my technique. It's a lot to learn operating mm. a mill. They they are a complex tool, and there's people a lot do do you know entire apprenticeships learning how to run them. So <laughs> yeah, and here's just me and my little 150 year old shed. <laughs> but I'm yep. I'm getting good results, and um, that's the important part. I haven't stuffed mm. up too many things, although I did spend all yesterday working on one part for a build and it was mm. not until five and a half hours in that i realized that i had irrevocably screwed the thing up oh um, yeah and so today was spent remaking that part uh, i didn't screw it up second time uh, at least not in any way i couldn't fix um but yeah um, it, it's, it's it's going well uh but the biggest thing taking up my time is that i'm gearing up for my next big showcase build um mm. now that tusk is finished uh and it's a quill and dagger mm, so, i saw the blade uh, i saw the bro profile on your mm. instagram looks good so <clears throat> it's, um i've gotten ever since posting i've had like four people message me going that's an awfully long tang <laughs> and um one i don't care what you think <laughs> and two <laughs> i have learned multiple times the hard way that it's better to start out with too much tang let me tell you. And so you now just by, much tang. by default, I just, on every knife that is hidden tang uh, or or through tang, I, I start out with a good couple inches longer than I think it should be and then plan to just trim it 
Um, That's right. I've seen Niels. I've seen Niels Vandenberg with like a four inch freaking uh, four foot tang on one of his <laughs> freaking stilettos. That's called so. a Damascus billet, Sam. He's well got <laughs> a handle onto it. <laughs> no, it's um, it's one of those things. You can always trim a tang down, but adding steel to a tang is introducing a weak spot. So, yes. Um, yeah, I. I'm looking forward to this build. I, I haven't done a Quill and Dagger for a good while now. I think the last one that I did was my Heirloom Dagger, which feels like forever ago. Mm. Um, so I'm going to see where I've learned. I'm using, I always use these showcase builds as like seeing where I'm at, gauging where I'm at skill wise. And Quill was and Dagger's. 48 hour Dagger Challenge Dagger before, after that? No, I was still working on the, um, the Heirloom oh, Dagger right. while yeah. I did that yeah so it's been a while Mm -hmm. and um yeah a a quill and dagger is is a really great way to showcase what you can do with knife ornamentation it's probably probably one of the better builds to do for ornamentation and this is going to be a very extra build (laughs) very flashy when isn't Um, it when it's considering do you (laughs) yeah exactly so how long it takes, I don't know, but I've started it, and that's the important thing. I want to try and get it done quickly, but who knows? Best laid plans, mice and men. Mm. Uh, my song of the week, uh, I've been listening to my 90s jams again, um, but this one actually comes, uh, it started its life in 1974 as a disco song mm. um, by Bob Crew and Kenny Nolan, and then later on was um, covered in the late nineties by a band called all saints. If you remember them. Yep. Remember all saints. I do. I do. But then uh, a couple of years after all saints covered it, it got a special version of it made by a super group that was came together just to do this song for the soundtrack of Moulin Rouge. Um, and it was a super group of Christina Aguilera, Maya, Pink, and Little Kim coming together to do a cover of the song Lady Marmalade. Mm. And no matter what you think of those singers, that song is a bop. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They murdered it. It's not until you've actually gone a long time without hearing it and then listened to it again that you realize just how much of a bop that song actually is. If you, if you hear that and you don't start shaking your hips, there is something mm-hmm. fundam- fundamentally wrong with you. Yep. Start speaking French. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bloody good song. It really is. Um, And they did a, a, for for like an ad hoc singing group that was brought together just to help promote a film, because it's not even really, it's barely (laughs) used in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, It was an absolutely killer track. Yeah, it topped the charts for a little while. For a long while, yeah. Uh, and those those guys, no girls, never got together to sing again. It was just for that song. <laughs> so, um, yeah, really, really good song. <sighs> but we have quite a few listener emails. Or we could do our inspirations of the week. What do you What are you feeling like? Uh, let's get uh, let's let's get to our inspirations. Who's been yeah, inspiring right. you, Alex? Well. It's not a blacksmith. Well, kind of. Mm. Sort of. <gasps> it's an armorer. Ooh. But they don't just do... The thing is, they they don't do historical armor. Okay. But they don't do fantasy armor either. They do 
what they what they make looks to to my admittedly very novice eye when it comes to armor it looks like what if you were to take the concepts used in the designs of fantasy armor and make very realistic versions of them mm. of what they would have looked like had they been used in history um and what they make is just by hand is some of the most stunning pieces of armor I've ever seen in my life. Um, I am going to butcher their name and I apologize in advance for butchering their name. Um, it's Enrique Puyol or Pujol. And it's on Instagram there. Uh, E-N-R-I-C Enrique underscore Pujol P-U-J-O-L underscore art. And it's this hand-tooled, molded leather um, with metal plates under, uh, you know, next to it, with engraving and and like repose work all over it, and handmade buckles and just exquisite, absolutely exquisite pieces with attention to detail, like you wouldn't believe. It yeah, looks nice. like it would be perfectly in place on the set, the film set of the Lord of the Rings films, hmm. um, except imagine 20 times more detail. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's one of these things that I, I, you watch them make it because they're quite open with their process and the stages that they go through and they, they show what things look like when they're still on the on the work table and before dying and shaping and all that sort of thing, you can see how much just pure passion goes into the making of these pieces. And um, it's, it's really another per yet another person who just has this pursuit, clear pursuit of perfection and looking at their work sort of takes you into this other world um, that <laughs> makes you just wish you could wear it. Yeah. I'd love to. I'd love to just have a suit of this standing in a corner of my room on a mannequin, sort of thing, just as an art piece because it's incredible. Um, yeah, for sure. It's that because uh, I'm, you know, entering into this new high end, high detail project. It's been very much inspiring me. Um, his work to to see how much detail can you actually cram into something without making it look overdone with while making it still look like a, a homogenous piece like it's meant to be there and mm. um it's the best way i can think of to describe the armor that he makes so yes how about you sam Very who's cool. been inspiring you oh well he's he's come up in my feed recently with a pair of swords that he made another swordsmith i know how how surprising <laughs> um but like i just really love the aesthetic he, he's very much in line with uh petra fleornex and um david delegadel you know see the law forge and all that kind of stuff very much in that vein but he has his own kind of very uh nordic swing to it it's very like he he goes very norse with his inspiration um and the pair of blades that he finished, he did. He did all of the, um, the metalwork and stuff like that on his, himself. All the leather work for the sheaths. The sheaths are incredibly ornate uh, and tooled, and the handles are all covered in silver mm -hmm. uh, because they're vampire hunter swords. 
Ah, so the weapon based, can't be used against them. Yeah, based of uh, based on uh, like Slavic mythology and folklore. Um, so they're really cool, and the the blades are multi bar pattern welded blades that have like these amazing uh, etchings down the center. Definitely well worth taking a look at if you if you uh, are interested in that kind of thing. Um, and his name is Vladimir Kostolansky. Right. And he goes by VK Blades on Instagram. VK Blades. VK Blades, all one word. And he makes some insane, like, um, multi-bar pattern welds. Yeah, right. He also does a lot of, like, uh, bronze casting, stuff like that. But you can see a lot of inspiration from, like, Celtic, Nordic, you know, that kind of thing. Um culture in his blades but he just does it so cleanly um he he has some of the cleanest multi-bar twist blades i've seen in a long while and he's also done a couple of serpents in the sword which i really love you know that that whole aesthetic and i really want to try that one day but i'm not up for it right now beautiful attention to detail Mm. yeah he he is truly mad uh, <laughs> in all the best ways yes absolutely but yeah he um i've been following him for a while and i'm not sure why I, I think i've used him as an inspiration before but i can't remember um i i definitely followed him with the intent of using him as an inspiration even if i didn't use him before um but yeah he everything he makes everything he touches turns to gold so uh definitely well worth a look um I just, yeah, absolutely love the the aesthetic that he goes for with his blades and the amount of detail that he goes into with the not only the steel, but also the fittings and then the sheaths and everything. Everything is cohesive in its intricacy. Yeah. Like he never leaves a piece to, to, uh, to being too plain. So, yeah. Very, very cool. I'll definitely give him a follow. Yeah. So we've been inundated with uh, emails and messages across the, the the email inbox and on Instagram. That's um, not a bad so, thing. It's always good no. to hear from our from our loyal listeners. I keep thinking our, viewers, but well, they're, they're, you know they're viewing with their ears. <laughs> they're basting their ear turkeys as we lick their ear lollipops. <laughs> Oh, dear. Our first email comes from Shane Naus, and he says, I just listened to your episode about 15 and 20, and it made me wonder, if you used 1095 and 15 and 20 for a Damascus piece, is there going to be any measurable amount of carbon migration? I imagine it acting like a few other things, as though the lower carbon content alloy would draw and pull carbon from the high carbon content steel. Sorry for the poorly worded overlong question. And one other question, is there a specific reason I never see people using engraving type chisels to make guard slots? Seems like it would be time consuming, but very accurate and precise. Keep up the awesome content. You guys inspire me every day. Well, I mean, the... Sam's the the, uh, metallurgist of the two of us. (laughs) And and the engraver, funnily enough. (laughs) And the engraver. I'll leave this to you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I do have um, a handsome engraving set, though. Oh, you do, you do. I wonder who, <laughs> wonder who made the set. Um, 
Anyway, that being said, uh, Alex did mention um, in our last episode, funnily enough, when we were talking about etching Damascus, that um, you can get all, um, the person in question actually got a lot of shadowing in their 15 and 20 mm. because of carbon migration. And yes, when using 1095 <clears throat> specifically, it is much higher carbon than the 15 and 20. And steel always tries to find homogeneity, right? Which is, it means it tries to always find an equilibrium, a balance inside the material. And when you uh, have such an active element like carbon in there, it is always going to be trying to find the path of least resistance either out of the material or to spread itself among the material evenly. Uh, and so, yeah, you're going to get some carbon migration into the 15 and 20. How much you'll get depends on how long you stay at welding temperatures, how many welding heats you use, uh, you know, like how long it takes you to forge the blade after forge welding and stuff like that. It, it really does depend um, on a lot of factors like that. And like whether or not the carbon migration will have an adverse effect on your patterning uh, tends to come down to uh, the amount of decarb and stuff like that on your on the surface layers and yeah a bunch of other things but basically it's not really something to worry about unless you're doing a very bold pattern a very low layer pattern in which case you will see those that carbon migration but in low layer in high layer stuff you never notice it i quite like seeing carbon migration shadows I, there's a certain legitimacy to the damascus when you see it happen i i, I personally love it in um stainless jackets on carbon cores in Sanmai. Mm. Um, Carl B. Anderson, who I've used as an inspiration before, has mastered the art of getting 416 to have this beautiful black shadow through it, purely through carbon migration from a, a high carbon core. Um, so that can it can look amazing, especially in, in um, Sanmai. But yeah, like there's nothing wrong with a bit of carbon migration. The big thing is, is that you're leaching carbon from the high carbon stuff, but the lower carbon, quote unquote, is still high enough carbon that it would make a decent knife on its own. So you're not worried about it, you know, decarburizing to the level that you would actually create a useless blade. Yeah. yeah. As far as why not use engrazing, engraving chisels to make guard slots, engraving chisels aren't great at punching holes. Um, like not with that attitude, <laughs> I mean, you can. I didn't say that they're not. I didn't say they're not capable. I just said they're not great for it. Put it um, this way: when you're trying to dig a hole, you don't scoop off an inch of dirt at a time with your you spade. Yeah, you don't use a spoon. <laughs> 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 um, the 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 thing is that the reason we use drills and files or mills, if we've got them, some if we've got people. Them. <laughs> Um, is because, yeah, it's it's the literally the simplest way to make a guard slot. Now, there are people like Kyle Royer who use uh, incredibly high-speed dental burrs and stuff like that to create a relief pocket for the Ricasso to sit into. Um, but, yeah, as far as using engraving tools, they're not as accurate as you think. They're actually much harder to control than people give credit for, even pneumatic gravers are relatively difficult, devilishly difficult to be super accurate with. Whereas a couple of brushes with a file is quite easy to control uh, with most for most people. Uh, and the fit up you get from file and drill is going to take much less time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, work smarter, not harder, I guess. That's it. I mean, to. 
I've there are easier ever... ways to achieve that. <laughs> yeah, I've I've used my engraving chisels once in guard fitting, and that was when I stuffed up the guard on the big muso buoy I did for a blade for a Perth knife show a couple of years back. Um, and bent the guard in the area where the Ricasso was supposed to meet up with it. Mm. And so I had to actually chisel a pocket for the Ricasso to sit into inside that bend. And I muffed it so badly. Like there was, you know, just getting the lines dead straight and actually perfect was almost impossible. So, yeah, yeah, I I can say that I would much rather not. I hope that answers your question. Shane, the next email comes from Garrett Navarrett. He says, hello to you both. First, I would like to say I'm glad that Sam is back. I had a couple of questions. First, I recently purchased some Rokusho and copper sulfate for the Nyage patina. Uh, When looking into the copper pot, I had a bit of sticker shock. I wanted to ask if it is possible to use a pickle pot from a jewelry supply store and now while i uh, for now while i save up for a solid copper pot i could put some scrap copper in the bottom if needed i thought with it being a non-reactive pot and having its own heat source this could be a good way to get started barring that i could use a copper cooking pot and sand off the tin lining second this is a bit more vague I I thought I remember in an earlier podcast you mentioned welding on handles to Damascus billets using bimetal welding rods or something to do with it being stainless steel rod. My question is, for my TIG welder, would it be good to weld on my handles with stainless filler rod instead of the standard ER770S2 filler rods? I hope that makes sense. Sorry for the two long questions. Thank you, as always, for your time and knowledge on the podcast. Garrett. Well, thank you very much, Garrett. Um, when it comes to the Rockshore and the Niage bath, um, you need to make sure that none of the elements that are con- contacting the Niage are um, iron-based. So they can't be stainless steel or steel of any kind uh, or iron or anything like that. Because no irony iron, allowed. No irony allowed. Because iron will literally just kill the Niage. It, it ruins the the um, the bath. And so you've got to avoid putting <laughs> you've got to avoid putting iron anywhere near it. Um, pickle pots and stuff like that from memory are either glass or ceramic which work. Um, I actually before I forged my own copper pot because I found out as well that for like getting copper pots is a massive pain in the ass or incredibly expensive. Um, I forged my own. But uh, yeah, before that, I used a uh, slow cooker with a ceramic basin in it. Um, and yeah, as long as that it's not, as long as it's not steel, you'll be fine. Um, the only thing is, is, the reason that having a copper pot helps with Niage is because the more copper that is in contact with the solution, the older the copper gets, the more oxidized the copper gets, uh, the more effective the Niage is. Right. So most Niage baths that you'll see have this really heavy buildup of Rockshaw on the inside um, from multiple baths of, of copper. Um, the main thing to remember when using Niage is that it has to be kept at a boil when you're using it, and so therefore you're going to be having to constantly top it up. I use distilled water because uh, the extra elements in tap water can be a little bit uh, you know, damaging to the Niage mix. But um, 
yeah, hopefully that helps with Rockshaw. As far as your welding rods go, the the standard ER stuff is is okay, the mild steel rods, but if you have like access to high carbon filler rod, I would highly suggest that. The reason that the dissimilar metal electrodes, which is what Alex and I were talking about, work is because you're normally bonding low carbon steel to high carbon steel. And being that it's flash melting them, the incredibly uh, high amount of carbon that gets leached into the weld pile, uh, the pool, and then immediately cools, causes either surface fractures or it just causes an incredibly brittle weld. Uh, and so having that stainless rod means that you have less carbon migration, which means that you have a less brittle weld. Disclaimer, though, neither Sam or I are TIG welders. No. Yeah, no. Um, the <laughs> I, I use arc only um, yeah, we, we love our stick I, I have a mig and i don't use it <laughs> i i will say that i've i've transitioned from using dissimilar electrodes to using low hydrogen rods 7016 stuff um they give me just as good a uh, a hold and they're about half the price <laughs> the only thing is they're an absolute pain in the ass to get to arc properly they stick to everything <laughs> i've seen you weld though that's probably not it's probably well, more I mean, of yes, a user. It's probably error. just, yeah, probably just the, the fact that I'm a shit welder. But you know, I like to Blade give my Smith, excuses. Bladesmiths aren't known for their welding abilities. I only weld with a forge. Mm-hmm. The rest of it's just sticking stuff together with, you know, metal glue. That's it. So hopefully that helps, Garrett. And our next email comes from Shane from Maine. Hey, Shane. And he says, hey, guys, remember the challenge for the rebar knife? I was trying to make a knife f- with my super limited setup and tools using a leaf spring when I realized I had double ridged rebar labeled USA 5560. And I decided to try that instead. It moves much easier because it heats faster and stays hot for longer with each heat. And I've almost got the general blade shape and tang shape in. The spine is about an eighth inch thick at this point, and I don't want to go any thinner before quenching. I just have one question in light of all this, and it's kind of long. When it comes time to grind in my bevels and put an edge on this thing, should I use the angle grinder since I don't have a belt grinder or a disc grinder or a bench grinder, or should I use files, and why? Also... I am trying to double challenge this thing by punching a hole clean through with my punch. I don't have a drift, but I'm sure I can find a way to drift the hole with a similar tool like a stainless steel screwdriver or something like that. Thanks, and much love to the Forgecast, to both of you and to all our brothers and sister Smiths out there. Keep calm and forge on. Shane from Maine. Thanks, Shane. So there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat when it comes to putting bevels on something. Um, Sam and I always like to advocate trying to forge your bevels um, as much as possible just to, you know, so that you know how to do it and so you can Mm -hmm. do it. Um, And the better you get at forging the bevels, the less grinding work you're going to have to do to get out errant hammer blows and things. Angle grinders, you can grind knife bevels with an angle grinder. It's absolutely possible, but... Because it's a spinning disc that you are almost always going to have to hold at a slight angle, it's going to give you an ever so slight hollow grind on the whole thing, and it's going to require you to keep your hands so steady. I mean, jet pilot steady. 
Um, <laughs> otherwise, you're gonna, yeah, otherwise you're going to end up with divots and all sorts of things like that. Um, a disc sander, a lot of people actually use disc sanders for grinding their bubbles. Uh, they, you get good at it, you can do a damn good job, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and files is very, very slow, but it also the mistakes that you can make are very slow. Yes. You don't make big mistakes quick when you're doing, doing it with files. And I mean, it doesn't have to be a question of one or the other. You could hog off the majority of the material with an angle grinder and then transition to files yeah. um, to, to it, finalize it. It speeds everything. it up quite a lot. Yeah. You just yeah, got to uh, slip and leave a gouge. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, but you've got to remember this is a rebar knife we're talking about. It's not going to be like a high value item it's not going to be like the best knife ever made or anything like that i'm hoping that you tested the material to see if it actually hardens before you forged a knife and then go to grind it so Mm. if you haven't heat treated a bit of it like forged a piece of it into like an eighth inch by you know half inch by four inch long piece and then quench that at red hot and see if you can snap it if you haven't tested the heat treat, don't bother trying to grind the knife because yeah. you might be grinding on a piece of mild steel. Rebar doesn't let her opener. Yeah, rebar rebar is not all made the same. Um, so yeah, <laughs> like don't waste your time if if it's going to end up being completely pointless. And um, um, like the the most uh, every, every rebar knife I've ever made in my early days of scrounging. Um, it's a water quench. It's the only way to get any sort of sort of even remote hardness in rebar. Yep. It's um, doesn't like it well. No, you barely have to temper the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's it. And I mean, like the the whole point of the rebar knife challenge was simply to get people to make a knife out of something that was you know relatively easy to hand and, and open free. to many beginners. Yeah, mm. most most of the time it's free. Um. And so, yeah, like, don't don't put too much energy into it if it's just going to end up being useless. Um, but it's a good practice piece, you know, if nothing else, for future yeah. projects. As far as drifting things, if you have rebar, you can make a drift out of rebar. Yeah, actually, rebar drift would do a damn good job for a long while. So, yeah, just forge the, forge the nodules in or grind the nodules off if you want to go that way. Uh, and you can make a drift out of that. You don't need to use a stainless steel screwdriver. For that especially since a screwdriver is straight shafted and not tapered yeah, yeah you want to taper both ways a long taper towards the the main drifting point and then a short taper back towards the struck point so that it'll actually free itself when it gets pushed through the hole mm. and it'll leave a fairly exact size hole that is uh the size of the thickest point of the drift that yeah. way so hopefully that helps shane from maine Thanks, and Shane. our next email comes once again from Mark DeGeorge. <laughs> and he says, <laughs> I'm going to say it that way. He <laughs> says, hello, way back in the first couple of episodes, Alex described a recipe of a 7724 mix of vermiculite, perlite, cement, and sand. Did he ever try it out? And if so, did it work out? Also, can you go into this recipe in depth, please? Type of cement, type of sand, what the numbered ratio breaks down to, etc. Thank you, all the guys, for what you do to the community and with your podcast. Weekly information is invaluable. Thanks, Mark. Well, in that episode, actually, you go down and do a breakdown of the whole thing. So if you track down that episode, it'll, it'll all be there, really. And yes, I did use it. And yes, it lasted a damn good long while. Um, 
it was pretty good. Its refractory properties were excellent. Um, the only downside to it compared to commercial stuff was um, surface finish is nowhere near as smooth as what you get with something like Duracast or Satanite. Um, it just, I could not get it super smooth. Even filing it down, it wanted to uh, pull apart. Uh, and the other thing was the longevity. It did not, um, it was it, like the, the bulk of it. If I made, for example, if I made like a fire brick sized piece, the corners would go off. Uh, uh, it would be quite brittle, all the corner pieces, but the central mass of the brick would be almost indestructible. So in thin profiles, even in corners, corner shapes, not great. I'd be interested to try it again with like a, a large arch or something that's you know two two inches thick sort of thing, because um, in enough mass, it was quite strong and long lasting. Um, but its refractory properties were brilliant. It actually pretty comparable to a lot of commercial stuff not high-end commercial stuff but the sort of you know the 60 bucks for a 20 kilo bag sort of stuff <laughs> you know your your uh, shearer cast 160s and things like that it was about the same as that um but yeah if you're trying to get a nice neat smooth surface finish for like a, a forge floor for example it's 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 nice to have a flat surface there it was a little tricky to get that but um yeah, I'm sure that there are more tweaks that can be done, like changing the type of sand and things like that. I just used builder's sand. I didn't do anything fancy with it. Um, and type of cement, I wouldn't even know there were different types. God damn. I I'm not a builder. What am I, a chemist? <laughs> not, not, rapid, not rapid set. I just got a bag that said cement on it and just took that home. <laughs> it worked fine. Minus, <laughs> minus the aggregate, hopefully. This is... Yeah, it was it was literally just cement. Um, so it was a small bag, something that you would then add to other things to make, you know, concrete or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's like brick mortar or whatever you'd call it, I suppose. But um, maybe this would be a good opportunity for you, Mark, to experiment with different um, variances as well yourself. Maybe if you used aquarium sand and uh, finely sieved, high-end cement you maybe you would get something even better or maybe if you pre-crushed your vermiculite um something like it might be able to get the mix finer uh and that Isn't, extra fineness might actually give it more strength who knows yeah but you'll lose some of the you uh, will heat, you uh, will try because have a play with it and try and find a balance yeah, and I mean, you could trade out the cement for something like uh, Lanco 156 or something like that, like uh, yep. fireplace mortar that you can normally mm -hmm. buy from hardware stores. Which would have better refractive pro um, pro properties anyway. So, Yeah, I, I used to use that to line my um, my fire pot and my charcoal forge. Because mm. <laughs> it was that the cheap, cheapest way. Yeah, like it, it worked. Like uh, if it was subjected to stupid amounts of heat, it would eventually start to melt. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, for, for the most part, especially if, uh, on the base of a charcoal forge, it never got touched by the heat because the heat was all going up. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, no, it lasted quite a while. You know, it's actually pretty strong stuff once it's set. Yeah, there you go. I use uh, Lanco 156 to do Hamon with. Yeah, that's also a use. Yeah, I've, I've got a bag that's lasted me three years. <laughs> <laughs> you don't use much. No, well... 
So I, I went from, I used Lanco for a while for my Gamones and then I went to Satanite when I got some, but now I'm out of Satanite, probably go back to Lanco. <laughs> yeah, it does, it does a passable job. It's pretty good. Yeah. You I, just got to layer it right. It's, you just got to build it and be patient with baking it on and everything. Yeah, I've in, I'm invested in some in a mortar and pestle, like a, a cheap mortar mm. and pestle, and I'm thinking I might try like powdering a little bit more the Lanco because it's it's mm-hmm. just that little bit too gritty yep. for for a good hormone. But yeah, I reckon if powdered up a little bit more, I reckon it maybe keep good. half and half because that uh, that initial like thin layer that you put on there, you might want it to be a little gritty to mm. hold a little better. Um, That's true. Maybe keep a small pot for that, and then the rest of it you could powder up a bit more. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, we have deviated. We have one more message, and it was from Dan Hubs. And he says, firstly, I want to say thank you for the show you guys put on. It's very informative and and just plain fun to listen to. The biggest struggle I have is transitioning between only building custom orders and building the knives I want to make and selling them. My wait list on custom orders is constantly between three to four months long, which makes me always feel under pressure to not be able to take the time to build what I want to. I signed up for a table at Blade Show Atlanta here in a few months, and I currently do not have a single knife in inventory to take. I've been trying to hustle to fill orders and start building an inventory, but I feel bad for not getting my current custom orders out faster. I'm sure I'm not the only one that listens to your show with this same issue. And Dan, you are absolutely not. Um, there, is... <laughs> there, there are two hosts on the show that That's know this right. feeling. <laughs> it, it was the bane of my existence taking commissions. And I get it. Like when you're trying to, and I've looked at Dan's work, by the way, it's exquisite. He does really nice stuff. Um, I can understand why his wait list is that long. I'm surprised it's not longer, to be honest. But if you, no matter where you're at or how good you are, having that wait list weighs on you. Even if you have people say, oh, no, don't don't worry, take your time. It doesn't matter how long you take. Oh, um, you know, I'll wait for it. It's still sitting there in your mental catalog and it's always going to sit there. And any time you take time to work on something else, you're going to be thinking about that. And it haunts you after a while. And I'm a big fan of just not taking commissions. And it's because what we do is an art form. You don't have, you know, it's, it's no different like painters or sculptors or something like that. You can't force art to happen. And being uh, having a wait list or, 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 a, or a backlog like that is forcing you to work on something that you, the love may have gone from. We do our best work as artists. I know, Niels, if you're listening, you're saying, we're not artists, we're craftsmen. But... <laughs> the same thing god damn it Niels um, artisans <laughs> we need that love we need to be in love with the thing we're building if that dies it's a, it's a job again all of a sudden it's just a job and let's face it you can't make knives for a living as just a job you'd go insane <laughs> you'd be broke and unhappy yeah you've got to you've got to love the thing you're working on you've got to desperately need to see it finished and that's only going to happen on the things that you want to work on and that's why i closed my books like 18 months ago and haven't opened them since and have no plans on opening them since and just flat out don't take commissions i have my dibs list system so that i can work on whatever i want and then people can say i i want in on that when it's finished. 
I, I that, really love Alex's system. Um, a few people posting, have adopted it since. Yeah, posting work in per- progress pictures is always a good way to gain interest in something, mm. but having a dibs list, like absolutely advertising that you have a dibs list for it, is yeah. a great way to do that. And I want to adopt that myself because unlike Alex, I closed my books, but then also didn't stop saying no to commissions <laughs> yeah. because people don't like, even if you advertise that you no longer have an open book for commissions, people will still contact you and go, oh, yeah. Hey man, I know you're not taking orders, but <laughs> sometimes I'll just and, straight up message you and say, make me a hammer. Oh yeah. They, I, I've had that literally <laughs> I, last, last week I was telling Alex, I got someone message me saying, make me a hammer. And I no, like, hello. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> But like the the thing is like I, I'm still working on a couple of commissions that I've had for like over a year and they make me feel horrible, especially because in the past couple of months dealing with everything else that's been going on in my life, I haven't been able to work on them. Yeah. Um, and Plus, it's probably the I, last thing in your mind. I even I even had to start one of them again, which is a huge project, and so like yeah, they weigh on me daily, where I'm constantly fretting about those in the back of my mind. I hate it. So, like, I'm trying to get away from it. These are the last three commissions I will ever take. Um, you know, so, like, I've sworn off commissions because they drive me mental. Hell, I've still got Seth Wood's knife sitting on the table behind me and waiting for a sheath. And I just, <laughs> I, I know, like, Seth's an awesome guy. I know he's not stressed about it, but it's, it, I still walk past. And I'm like, oh, God damn it, I forgot again. I need to make that sheath. And it's because I'm not in love with it. It's not on my mind. Mm. And one day I'll get around to it and have some spare time and do it. Uh, but it's, it's going to be out of obligation. Sorry, Seth. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I moved on emotionally. <laughs> I was, like, the thing is that like Seth wasn't in a hurry to get the hammer off me, but I got it out to him because I just didn't want it hanging over my head. Yeah, I should have. And I'd, I'd, I've forgotten that that was actually supposed to be like a, a reciprocal deal and I was supposed to be getting a hammer off Seth. Yeah, but then point. like all like, of it, nature well, decided, we're going to do it again and again. <laughs> <laughs> so Seth's like, you know, oh, thank God I've got my shop fixed and it's all finished and I can get back to work. And then nature's like, you thought first came the fire, now you comes the You thought fire was bad. <laughs> that man is the world's biggest optimist. I love him. No, yeah, I, if, awesome. I wish I could have a, a, a one hundredth of his optimism and his work ethic. God damn! Uh, yeah, honestly, uh, insane. But uh, yeah, long story short, the answer to how do you get over the like issue of feeling bad about commissions is stop fucking taking them. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I know that sounds harsh, but you've got to be harsh because like. Sam goes through this. I go through this. It's really hard to say no to money when you work for yourself. When you're trying to make this real, when you're trying to do this, and somebody says, I will give you money to make this thing. You're like, oh, money. That'll keep me going for a little bit longer. I'll do the thing. And you've got to go, no, no. Don't do the thing. Stick (laughs) with your vision. Because if you're doing good, you are going to do your best work when it's your work. Not when somebody mm-hmm. else wants you to do it, but when you're doing it for you and somebody just trust somebody will fall in love with it. Literally every creator that we have spoken to, except Kyle Royer, who is a totally different beast, um, have all said the same thing. They do not take commissions. Mm. The only caveat I would have is if you get contacted by someone who wants you to make something that you absolutely desperately want to make. Yeah. That 
is going to give you the opportunity to break into a new market. For instance, David Delagadel and his friend got contacted by Marvel to create the sword for Thor, right? Mm. For uh, for um, freaking the the guy who oversees the Rainbow Bridge. Can't remember his name. Help me. Um, it's too late at night. Yeah, uh, whatever. Anyway, you get the idea. Um, yeah, he got that contract, and it was a very short period contract, and he did it, and it got him a hell of a lot of eyes. That yeah. is a good time to take a commission. <laughs> Neil did the acts from, um, was it Assassin's Creed Valhalla? Yeah, exactly. Like those those kind of commissions can be very helpful. If a very famous person commissions you to make something that's going to get it in front of a lot of people, that can get you some business. But take them at their like only take it if it's going to be valuable to you and you're going to enjoy it. Uh, and you're sure of just, both those things. Yeah, and just otherwise, just do not advertise. <laughs> it's like there is a certain amount of, and it's a term from blues music called paying your dues. When you're starting out as a knife maker and you're wanting to do this like seriously on a serious level, there is a certain amount of paying your dues you've just got to do to get your name out there, to get follows, to get some of your stuff into people's hands. But as soon as you are able to do that and you have the stones to actually get out there and do it, close the books, keep them closed, keep the passion, keep the love. Don't take commissions. It's just not worth it. It will slowly kill your love for the craft. Yeah. And most of the time you end up getting commissions for stuff that you don't actually want to be known for making. Like. You like get, Viking axes with a fucking spike out the back of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, just just stuff that you would never make if you were going to make stuff. But in order to make money, you're going to make them anyway. And the problem is that along the way, you can get known for making that kind of thing without you wanting to. Mm. And so that audience can then become a little bitter when you stop making that kind of stuff. Oh so man, it's been- I got so many messages after Koi's knife going, will you make me an auto? And I'm like, no, that was a one-off. I'm, I'm doing yeah. one. Koi has the only auto I'll ever make. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like it, you've got to be careful that like making the stuff that you want to make has the advantage of getting you known for making the stuff you want to make. <laughs> yeah. Which means that if people are going to contact you about getting stuff made, it's going to be stuff that you want to make already. Yeah. And that's yeah. the the secret that Kyle Royer has is that he is known for making a very specific kind of knife, like a very specific look, very specific style. The shape and stuff like that could vary, but everyone knows what a Kyle Royer lo- knife looks like. Mm-hmm. And so Excellent. therefore he yes, he only ever gets contacted <laughs> by people who want a Kyle Royer style knife. Mm. So he gets to make what he wants to make because people know that that's what he makes. That's it. So I know it may not be exactly what you wanted to hear, Dan, but um, it's it's what you needed to hear. Yes, and I but wish you good the luck best at Blade Show. Yeah. yeah, I wish you the best of luck for the Blade Show. I understand the panic of trying to get a table full of stuff together. Um, my advice is over the year make projects that you can put aside that you're not going to sell because Blade Shows always come up on you. Or <laughs> well, do do a Grace Horn and just turn up with one thing in the middle of the table. Yeah. And have make everybody it. stop and marvel at it. <laughs> Man, have you seen those scissors she's working on right now? Five millimeters long. Oh my god. <laughs> like the I woman just... is a, just 
an amazing treat. She's. I just love the photos of it, like next to the head of a pin, and she's like, "Oh, I, I ground them too thin," and I'm like, "Oh, you went from like zero point zero one of a millimeter to like zero point zero zero nine nine of a millimeter." (laughs) I I keep looking at it, and I just know that I would like sneeze or get like the heebie-jeebies, and I would drop half of that and be like, "Well, that's gone now." (laughs) <laughs> Mate, my my hands shake bad enough. I like literally just flick it off the table with the pin. I have to wonder: does she have like a big roll of black felt that she like rolls out under her at the table when she's working, <laughs> so that if she drops them, it's like there they are. <laughs> you bloody well want to, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh man! I mean, at least she they're is- magnetic, so you could just you know run over with a magnet. Yeah, but magnets work on mass. No, this is true. <laughs> There's no mass in those things. <laughs> oh, man, I got a, just realized I've got a carbide sliver in my thumb. Isn't that always <sighs> phenomenal? Man, I, I get them so regularly. I have legitimately broken my rule on doing leather work and made a little leather pouch on my belt that holds a set of splinter tweezers. <laughs> so that I can just wherever I am, yep. I just will. Find, it's like inevitable. It's a daily occurrence. I find the moment the moment you start running, yeah. And I mean, they're not slivers of carbide for those people listening no. who don't know. It's when you use carbide tooling to cut steel. Mm. They create these ridiculously hyper sharp slivers of stuff, especially when you're cutting hardened material. Yeah, um, and, and they like, every shoot time, like bullets. Every time I take out my Fordham rotary tool to cut stuff in steel, it like I always end up with my hands feeling like I've been running them through fiberglass insulation. And it's not always that just like around the tool, like a little bit might blow off and land on like the rubberized grip of a power drill or something. And then three days later, you'll go and grab that grip and embed yourself with 10 of these things. Yeah, it's like shaking hands with one of those, uh, like the really small fine needled cactuses yeah yeah it's like the gimpy (laughs) gimpy plant yeah exactly (laughs) it just drives you insane except it makes you want to kill yourself more (laughs) 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 but with inspirations and emails out of the way that brings us into technique of the week technique of the week week and technique of the week is lightly dressing your ear salads thanks to the handsome fellas at nordic edge knife steels handle materials kits not to mention every tool from tongs to power hammers can be found at their easy to use website nordicedge.com.au <laughs> sam's having a meltdown <laughs> It, it always amazes me that Alex can get through the cold read of the fucking advertisement after saying something that ridiculous and seeing me absolutely lose my mind on the camera <laughs> on the Look, other side. Ear lollipops off. broke me, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ear lollipops, like, yeah, that, that episode will go down in, like, forever in history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, honestly, it always. I could never. I don't think I could ever ever read that out. I, I really hope it. that episode got beyond some sales and that it was <laughs> worth it. We can only hope. We can only I, hope. I hope somebody's like, "God damn, that was funny." I'm buying a power hammer. <laughs> 
sentence. As long as you tell him that you that the Forgecast sent you, so that you know that's he it. doesn't drop us as a sponsor because purely all of our really crap jokes. <laughs> that's right. At his expense. <sighs> oh Sorry, man! But technique of the week is opening holes. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about punching holes, but what about opening holes? Now you can drift your holes open, but that only works so far. Um, what we're talking about with opening holes, this is going to be a euphemism <laughs> technique of the week. Just, I'm already hearing the giggles the world over right now of everyone in their car you and at home. Slide your horn <laughs> through the hole and just hammer it. Just make sure, make sure you're lubing those drifts up <laughs> so that they slide right through. No one yes. likes a dry, dry drift. <laughs> Bite the pillow. <laughs> Going in dry. Oh, no, yeah, but and if, and if it won't let, fit, just just push it in harder. You know. <laughs> so let's say you're making something like a bottle opener, and you've punched a say twenty mil hole. What's that like? Uh, five three quarters. Yeah, three quarters of an inch. Yeah. Um, five. No, you're five eighths. Yeah, you can. Uh, but you've got a wall thickness around that hole of, say, quarter inch, six mil. You can then slide the horn of your anvil, or if you've got like a Bickern party tool or even a, a conical party tool or something like that, something that is conical in some way, slide it through that hole and start hammering the outside of the ring. <laughs> 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 we're not even we're not even trying and I'm not I'm trying to deliberately like <laughs> literally explain this process. We're, we're, and like, Sam's just you grinning at me. You can't understand how much Alex is like the focus face is on and he is trying just to make this like as legitimate as we can. <laughs> But like, yeah, I, of course. Like, and the thing is that doing this, like hammering the outside of the ring with a, you know, on the horn, uh, is doing the same thing that driving your drift through the ring um, does. Is that stretches the sphincter of <laughs> <laughs> irreparably. Once it's stretched, it stays stretched. You want to make sure that when you're drifting a hole, you want to drift it over a relatively similar sized hole. Otherwise, the ring will prolapse. <laughs> So just let, let, let's bring this let's bring this off the horn. Let's let's use the pull out method get it off the horn. If I was to take three eighths square bar and draw it out on the face of my anvil, the profile of that square bar would shrink, but the length of that piece of square bar would expand. It would it would lengthen. Yes. Um, and so that is what's happening around the outside of a hole when you are actually enlarging it. So you might have, uh, if you've punched that 20 mil hole for the end of a bottle opener and you need that final hole to be 40 mil, you take the 6 mil thick outer ring and as you hammer it, you are drawing out that outer ring. And so yeah, you're just making like you it would a straight piece of material. Yeah, so your cross section it will get smaller, but it will get longer, and so by longer, it's actually making the circumference of your circle get larger. Yes, if that makes sense. If you and can that's see past the bad euphemisms, and that's why it's important. Like um, that's why you see that uh, in 
John Rigoni does a really good example of this when he punches in just flat bar with a square end, and then he uses the corners of that square end and he forges those in to extend the circumference whilst not losing uh, thickness in the in the outer ring. Mm-hmm. Right, because he can he can maintain that thickness, but he uses the lumps that were created by the the corners of the flat bar to to extend it, uh, because you don't want to lose strength in that area, because obviously you're going to be levering on it later with, uh, and you don't want to leave lumps off. around your ring. Well, no, I mean <laughs> there are creams for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this just devolved. I- <laughs> <laughs> Lin Ray is never coming on the show. Never, never coming on the show. I'm sorry, guys. It's just not going to happen. He's, he is too much of a gentleman to come on this show. Uh, seriously, we are scaring off half of our audience. Anyway. Except Niels. Uh, Niels will be down for it. <laughs> Dirty bastard. Niels is down for so much. <laughs> he knows about stretch strings. Um, anyway. <laughs> That being said, yeah, there there are multiple ways to to get uh, stretch Stretching. out a, 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 a hole. Yes, uh, oh God, it's euphemism. Um, You've got to do yeah. it gently, though, otherwise you could tear it. You could, yeah. Stretch you also branches. don't you also don't want to draw from one side or the other too much because you don't want to over thin a symbols uh, a section because you'll end up with an oval rather than a circle. And if you nobody like, wants if you a want your ring. No, if you want an ovular hole, then that's fine because you know ovulation is fine. <laughs> like ov- ovulation is good. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> uh, anyway, hopefully that made sense among all of the other crap. It was important, sort of, sort of, <laughs> sort of. Mm-hmm. But yes, if you have any questions. <laughs> Talk to your parents. So many questions. <laughs> yeah, don't ask us. We don't know. If you have questions, directly message Sam. Mm. <laughs> Do so, and I will ignore you. <laughs> which brings us into our topic of the week, which is actually one that's been requested multiple times, and we have been super slack in getting around to. It's even been requested that each of us make a YouTube video about this topic. And we've both been super slack about it. So we thought, why not finally get around to it? (laughs) And the topic this week is handling tools. And I don't mean using tools. I mean putting handles on tools. I, you know, Uh, like after, after stretching rings, I think we all know that we know how to handle a tool. Um. (laughs) Handle our wood. Yep. That's it, man. Yeah. So... (sighs) Adding wooden handles to things. I mean, the, the handles of our tools are the user interface with which we interact with that tool largely. So mm. it's an important thing to get right. Uh, a lot of people just sort of, you know, you, you see, if you go to any flea market and look through the second, the inevitable secondhand tools dealer that's there, you will see um, hand-fixed and handmade tools lying around there. <laughs> And inevitably, you will see that there have been dozens of people throughout history that have just thought a piece of wood that has been vaguely rounded is enough to serve as a handle. And that Um, may be be the case in a tool that's used once in a blue moon, but on a tool that's used daily, 
or regularly in any way, that's absolutely not the case. And anyone who's been in a shed that has like an old hammer around, you've always seen that hammer. Mm-hmm. And you all know all know that hammer because it's that hammer that has 20 nails all sunk into the head, into the eye, to just like hold the handle on. And it seems that they just assumed that the more nails means more better. The head of that <laughs> hammer is the perfect metaphor for my life right now. <laughs> so it's completely and it's still And it's still wobbly. <laughs> <laughs> Just nailed to all hell. <laughs> <laughs> just holding on. Just hanging in there. <laughs> yes. Still good for a few more blows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But, yeah, so um, handling tools, like, there are so many different ways to do it, and, you know, different cultures have had different ways to do it over the years as well. And it depends on what the tool is for as well. Like, uh, struck top tools for instance, may not be wedged onto their handle. Mm. Um, in my struck top tools, I literally just, you know, have a tenon, which goes through the eye, um, that literally is just, you know, twice the, the length of the head, so twice the width of the head. And it just sits on there through friction. Uh, and that's like so that there's... inverted tomahawk fit. Yeah. And so that, that way, yes, it will come loose over time uh, with as you're hitting it, but all you have to do is tap the handle on the handle uh, and the head will seat itself again. But that means that the shock from the, the head being struck with a hammer doesn't immediately transfer to your hand because the stronger the connection between the head and the handle, the more shock is transferred through that handle to your hand. Whereas uh, hammers that you're swinging around all the time, you want them to be firmly secured in place. Um, and the yeah. um, that, that, that shock can also be mitigated by the material choice that you have for your handle. Um, you can't just use any old wood for a wooden handle no. of, of a uh, shock-inducing tool. Like if you're making the handle for a crank blower, sure, make that or whatever you want. Walnut's a nice choice for a classic choice for that sort of thing. But mm. if you were to then go and use walnut to make a hammer handle, it may not be the best choice. So ash, willow, things that they make baseball bats out of, a spotted gum, Hickory. very... Uh, Hickory. Uh, Baseball bats are a really good um, analog for hammers because it's a thing that's designed to absorb the shock of a powerful blow. Um, It's funny, um, anyone who's cut their own or who regularly cuts their own firewood very quickly learns the importance of correctly handled tools. Mm. Yeah, and anything that makes a good axe handle makes a good hammer handle. Mm. Uh, Same thing with uh, anything anything that can make a bow can make a decent hammer handle you yep you will make a decent hammer handle if you can find you <laughs> in the right <laughs> the right quantity jesus it's difficult to come across but uh yeah like even um hemlock will make a decent handle uh i believe it's hemlock just don't I suck can't. on it too much oh don't do that or the leaves or the flu- or the flowers <laughs> um even like you know and A lot of this, the thing is that all of these woods can make decent handles, but they have to be, have their grain oriented properly. It's, it's less about the direction. A a lot of people have talked about the direction of like the, the end ring lines and whether or not they're in line with the head or parallel. The, the big thing is whether that grain runs through the entirety of the handle. Mm. Right. So it doesn't matter if it's parallel or, or, uh, you know, like, uh, 
par- uh, parallel or perpendicular, as long as that grain runs all the way through the handle, the handle won't break. It's only when the grain runs off. Now, I found this out very spectacularly when I made a handle out of Osage Orange, which Osage Orange is a fantastic handle wood. Uh, it's incredibly strong, incredibly um, springy and all that kind of stuff. But the piece I had, the grain ran like a diagonally through the handle. And after two hits, the thing sheared in half mm-hmm. <laughs> in my hand. So, you know, and anyone who's handled Osage Orange wood will know that Osage doesn't just shear in half when properly grained. So much like a bow where you have to have unbroken rings in the back of the bow in order for it to spend, in order to sling an arrow, the the grain has to run all the way through the handle. And the shape of that handle matters a great deal. Um, hot mm. spotting is a real problem and something that a lot of people tend to overlook, uh, especially if they're making a handle for something that is in their style that fits their hand, but they're then selling it and sending it off to somebody else, it may not fit another user's hand. It might be too large, might be too ovular, mm-hmm. uh, might be um, might be weirdly faceted. It might be too rough. It may not have been sanded to a correct finish. It may not have been oiled properly. All of these things can create hot spots in the user's hand, and you have to consider that whether it's a knife handle hammer handle axe handle doesn't matter uh, and that's why i was saying people who cut firewood regularly will it's, it's doing it with a bad axe makes that mm-hmm. job a chore doing it with a beautiful axe makes that job blissful to do it is it's actually very calming relaxing thing to do if you have a good axe a very nicely handled axe uh, just the same as axe just the same as um, blacksmithing <laughs> If you have a, a wonderful hammer, like a Sam Towns custom, <laughs> it's quite nice to actually just, it's relaxing because you don't have to think about it. The, the, the tool sits in your hand. It fits in your hand. Um, and a hotspot can ruin that to, very, to very that quickly. End, it's interesting because I've had quite a few people who've bought my hammers over the years um, message me about the fact that my hands are octagonalized. Like all of my handles are octagonalized these days. And they were always surprised at how comfortable they are. I got a an smoothie. Octag- an octagonal I'm not, handle- no- I'm not good enough for octagonalized handles. Well, you handles. know, like I know that you're used to smooth handles, so I made one. I love my smooth you. handles. Yeah, I know. But um, yeah, I've, I've taken to octagonalizing all of my handles for my hammers because I find them incredibly comfortable and I find that they don't hotspot. Um, you know, it, it's, it's almost counterintuitive. They look like they would hotspot, but they don't. Um, so I've, I've had octagonalized handles on things before and I've always found them hotspot. It may be a personal thing. Could be. Or maybe they just weren't made right. Quite possible because <laughs> these, you know, it's, it's, it's very regular, unfortunately, that people like it's, it's one of those things really, because if you were to make something that is like a handled impact tool in order to really truly get a feel for whether or not you've done a good job or not, you would have to extensively use it. Yes. And so how do you mitigate this? You make your own tools and use them to make more tools. (laughs) A lot of people will um, learn how to make a hammer or an ax or whatever, and then they will start selling them but they themselves are using tools that they've bought or 
had somebody else make. Make your own stuff in the same style that you are making the products that you are sending out and then use them and you will very quickly find out you know it it may take a week it may take a month but you will you will find out if you're causing hot spots or if your surface finish is too rough or if you're maybe um your handle's too thick or too thin is just as big big of a problem um and maybe you're not uh seating the heads correctly and you might find they shake loose after a couple of weeks of use um and so anytime you find something that is wrong with it after using extensively do a bit of CSI, find out what it is and what would have stopped that from happening or made it better. And do this before you start shipping stuff out. Yeah. Um, I didn't, same I didn't with knives. A, yeah, I didn't sell an octagonalized handle and a hammer until I'd been using mine for like, you know, six, eight weeks. <laughs> yeah. You look at Sam's hammer rack and it's all Sam Town's hammers and oh. a B&B forge hammer. <laughs> and uh, a couple of other hammers now. Charming Hollow Forge Hammer. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, what else have I got? Uh, I haven't actually got hammer from another maker, I don't think. Yet. One day I'll have a go at making hammers. One day I'll have a Seth Wood Hammer. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that day too. I just got to remember that goddamn knife sheath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm interested to know if he's used the hammer that I made him. Um... Probably been too busy, the poor bastard. Probably, and he has been very busy. Mm. But yeah, no. Um, when it comes to handling tools, like um, one of the, some of the R and D that I've done over the years has been into how to keep the bloody heads on, because <laughs> I have an issue where I make hammers here in WA, and we've had a lot of humid days uh, in the past couple of years. Humidity has been rising in WA in general in the last couple of years. And so what I've noticed is that I've been shipping them internationally to drier climates. And within a couple of weeks, those heads are coming off. They're coming loose. They're slipping off. And are you hourglassing your, your eye? Yes, I am. Of course I am. Mm. But in um, the, other, the other reason that they were slipping off is because the wedge wood I was using was the wrong wood. I was using too hard of a wedge wood. Um, I was actually using Jarra in spotted gum handles. And so those spotted gum handles will just spit the Jarra out. <laughs> after a little while no matter whether i glued them or not they just did not like it um and so now i've taken to using either spotted gum or hickory wedges in my hammers and i haven't had that issue since but the the thing is, is the wood shrinks naturally when drying out and no matter how much i soak it in linseed oil there's going to be some moisture there as well and that moisture will get sapped away in dry climates especially in dry atmospheres like a hot forge um, and so as they loosen, obviously, if you're not going to tighten them up yourself by throwing in a steel wedge, cause I don't steel wedge mine until they loosen, um, then they're going to fly off and that's dangerous. So I've now taken to a sending a message along with my hammers saying when they get loose, throw a steel wedge in it, <laughs> B soaking them in linseed and oil and turpentine for ages, C using uh, hickory or spotted gum wedges in spotted gum handles because you want the wedge to be the same hardness or slightly softer. I always thought it was slightly harder, but it's actually slightly softer is better. Uh, and that's yeah, well, it's, see... a, it's a physical pressure. It's it's the the angle of the wedge that does it rather than the actual material hardness of the material. Yeah, and that's why you see Liam uh, Hoffman using. Hoffman. Uh, walnut in his hickory handles because uh, walnut is just slightly softer than hickory, so it provides also beautiful. That, 
It's a good contrast. Strength. Yeah, well, that's why I wanted to use Jarrah, because I really like that kind of dark wedge in a light handle wood. But the problem is, is that Jarrah is just too damn hard. <laughs> and and there is no, it's really dense. Yeah, there is no sufficient, like, dark wood that we can use here in Australia that, that matches that. Um, oh, I don't know about that. Well, I'm sure Ryan could find something for me. Ryan would, Ryan would be sending you a He's typing a list right now. <laughs> Angrily. I can hear it. But anyway, yeah, those those are some of the lessons that I've learned in my experience with uh, making hammers professionally for a couple of years now. Uh, I also glue all of my wedges because, you know, that's the easiest way to make sure that the wedge don't pop out. In, in my experience, you should always glue your wedges anyway. Yes. Yeah, it's just... just- common sense now one of the techniques that's like well established but i think misunderstood is turning the hammer upside down when wedging and when seating right so many people i've seen either put the handle like put the head on their hardy hole or something like that in order to drive the handle through the head no free floating yeah, exactly. You don't need to do that because the inertia of the head, the head doesn't want to move. And so when you strike the handle, the handle moves downwards. The head stays where it is. You can you'll actually split the it. bottom of your handle open if you put it the head on something. You'll just... Yeah, you're just transferring yeah. all that force straight through the handle. Mm. Um, you can do a, a science test with it actually at home if you get a kitchen knife and stick a potato on the end of the kitchen knife just lightly and then smack the, the butt of the kitchen knife with the palm of your hand the potato will work its way up the knife. Uh, it's yeah, the same but don't process. don't do this with the tip against the, the counter. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, make sure it's free-floating in air and don't do it with the knife pointed at anything you want to not put a hole in. Um, but yeah, the, the, the same thing happens with a hammer. And when you're driving the wedge in, instead of having the handle sitting on a hard surface and hammering the wedge in from the top, what I do is I start the wedge from the top and then flip it upside down on my anvil face and drive the handle into the wedge because that action is still driving the head up onto the shoulders of the handle. And so therefore it's not going to bounce out and, you know, upset everything. You also have much better control of the uh, angle at which the wedge enters because one problem that a lot of people get is skewed wedges. And if you think of the geometry of that, it means that one side of the wedge is gripping and the other side is not because yep. part of uh, one side is deeper in and the other's further out. So if you've actually got the flat head of the wedge against something flat and you drive the handle down, you can control the angle at which the wedge enters the, yeah. the thing. It also, it also means it's less likely to split the wedge because uh, mm. it's an even surface pressure across the top of the wedge rather than uneven from a hammer or a mallet. So, yeah. um, And I mean, if you can, if you have the ability and you have the shop space make a press for it. Um, I know Liam Hoffman presses all of his wedges uh, with a giant, like, 20-ton arbor press. <laughs> I, I don't think it's 20-ton. It's like 5-ton or something like that, arbor press. But uh, I don't have a press that has that kind of throw. Um, but, yeah, if you can press your wedges, press your wedges because it's a good way to, you know, make sure that it's perfectly seated. Um, but, yeah, I still have to hammer my wedges home, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, you get a knack to it after a while. All depends. I mean, you're putting out what you know, five hammers a month. Liam Hoffman does five hammers before breakfast. 
<laughs> yeah, that's so it. That like he needs a little bit more assistance in speeding up that process. If he was to hand hammer every single one of them, he would not put out as many as he does. Liam's, uh, yeah, level of production far outmatches mine. Mm. That is certain, especially because he's he has got a, he's got a team. Yeah, he's yeah, got a whole team. exactly. He also and has the world's like, biggest main tank. He also has like six hundred thousand dollars worth of machinery. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Me and my me and my dinky little shed out the back of my ex's house, <laughs> <laughs> and Liam in his friggin' warehouse with his like four power hammers <laughs> and his giant mag tank. You could swear you could tank. you could you could do a spa treatment in that mag tank. You really could. You could you could have a spa in his oil quenching tank. Yeah, like the the friggin' like four hundred gallon tub that he has of looks of like Mark a damn um, witch's cauldron. Yeah, that's it. And, and then his, his three-foot-wide grinder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Things a monster. Yes. One day we've got to try and get him on the show. We really do. But, uh, yeah, so yeah, handling minutes. handling tools doesn't have to be anything super, you know, like, difficult or uh, technical or anything like that. It's literally just sticking a piece of wood in the other piece of wood that has the handle on it, has the head on it. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I will make a video about that. I have made, I've done live streams where I've handled hammers before, but yeah, I'll do a video on it at some point. Yeah. And really the, the whether it's a, a, a knife or a hammer or an ax, whatever it is, um, make one for yourself and then use it a lot. And you'll very quickly find out whether or not you do a good job or not. Yeah, and, and if you're in a place where you can't make a hammer, right? Like if you don't have the size of forge you need or anvil or tools, buy a crappy old handle hammerhead from a flea market or, you know, like a mm-hmm. garage sale or something. And rehang it. And hang it yourself. Yeah, get yourself a handle. Either buy a, a pre-made handle from your local hardware store or cut a piece of handle wood up to make a handle out of and handle it up yourself and use that hammer for a while. And learn what makes a good handle and what doesn't. Good excuse to make yourself a draw knife too. Yeah, really, of you could sort of turn this into a whole series of projects for yourself. It does kind of get that way. Yeah, and a draw knife is an incredibly useful tool for making handles. I like. Yeah, even very quick. Even the man Liam Hoffman still stands by his draw knives. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed our slightly long episode. <laughs> Don't forget there is a competition going and it goes until the end of this month. And so the competition, it's teams of at least two, preferably two, but if you absolutely must have more, that's fine. We want to see equal contributions from everybody in the teams, total freedom of design, but it must be something whimsical because the world needs more whimsy. So if you don't know what a whimsical thing is, look it up on YouTube, that are like whimsical inventions or something you'll find. Or just anything on Uri Tukman's YouTube channel is pretty much a whimsical invention. Um, and like the, the ultimate simple whimsical thing is an automaton, right? Like yeah. the, the, the basis of whimsy is, is the automaton. You can it's do a, so much with that. It's a machine that is pointless, in all regards, except just making you smile. Exactly. That's, that's all it does. As the more complex 
and ridiculous the machine is in its in its function of making you smile, the better. The more whimsical yeah. it is. So um, I've seen machines that um, smoke cigarettes before. Like it, it just yep. it's got a little little reservoir of cigarettes, and yeah. one rolls down, and it smokes it, and then drops it out, and then rolls another one in there. It just sits there doing that. That's whimsical. Yeah. I've seen a a clockwork hand that just as you turn a little crank, it taps its finger impatiently. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, or the useless machine, which is a box that has a switch on top of it. And when you flick the switch, the box opens, a little arm comes out, flicks the switch back again and closes. There's no function to it other than just making you grin like an idiot. There was a fantastic one that was like a cat paw and it had different like responses where it would like slowly come up and click Mm -hmm. it. And then another one where it would just like snap itself out and click it. So it like had an attitude. You can put an amazing (laughs) amount of personality into them. It's brilliant. But yeah, no, there, um, there are so many different whimsical things you can do that yeah. don't, don't require a lot of technological like knowledge. You don't have to go super complex. Doesn't it have can to be, be simple. The, the, advi- the, uh, the example I gave last week of the, the anvil hammer mm. that's literally just an anvil on the end of a hammer handle. It's, it's whimsical, it's silly, it doesn't do anything, but it's amazing. <laughs> and one of the people's contribution could be handling that hammer. <gasps> wow. That's pretty cool. See it all. See, I brought it right back. But you have until the end of April prizes to be announced, but there will be prizes. So uh, make sure you put your best feats forward. <laughs> best feats. No offense to anybody who, competing who does not have feats. <laughs> it's the brown foots. <laughs> brown feet. All right, so um, anybody who's got any blacksmithing or bladesmithing or metallurgy or whatever questions, um, send through to ask.forgecast at gmail.com or slide into our DMs. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Remember to send them to the show, not to us individually, because we do work uh, at, at this for our living. So, yeah, we like to answer questions on the show, not so much in our personal lives. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah, but uh, anyway, I hope you're all doing well. Um, if you're looking for Sam, where can they find you? You can find me at Sam Towns Bladesmith on Facebook, Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, YouTube, Redbubble, the kitchen sink. Where can they find he, you, Alex? He practices that in front of the mirror three times. A I day. do. Yep. You can, you can find me on, uh, Facebook and Instagram and Patreon and YouTube. I go by Valhalla Ironworks. Um, yeah. Anyway. Take it easy, guys. Hope you're all doing well. Keep those forges lit. We'll see you next week.